Hey everyone, it's Bina007 here with Vassals of Kingsgrave's Agatha Christie reread. Today we're going to discuss Evil Under the Sun that was originally published in June 1941, but written pre-war in 1938. So you might get a bit of whiplash after one, two, buckle my shoe, because this novel does not contain any politics or war talk. Today I am joined by Pat. Hi there, 2.0 in the Discord. And you guys can all join the Agatha Christie and other pop culture discussions on the Discord by googling Vassals of Kingsgrave or VOK podcast, which will bring up a link, hopefully, for you to join us. So, Pat, is this your first time reading the novel? Is it a reread? And how do you rate this Acule Poirot murder mystery? Okay. Uh, first time reading it, but um, this is one of the Ustinov Poirots that I watched on TV with the family as a kid. Mm. So, it very much like, I, I, I think this must have been played every year about Christmas time for about 10 years. It was like um, The Great Escape and James Bond movies. It got regularly played and we always sat down and watched it, even though we knew who'd done it. So, um I would say I like this and I would call it a top tier Christie, but I would say that is mostly probably with Ustinov nostalgia and uh, Poirot's quite touching speech at the end. Mm. So those are maybe the two things that I think push it into top tier Christie because I was actually surprised that it's it's quite sparse really compared to some yeah. of the others. It's not an intricately plotted book with lots of side hustles and red herrings like Death mm. on the Nile, to which it's often compared. For me, it's very bottom of top tier, if not top of middle tier, Christy. Mm-hmm. And I do, I love that Eastonoff film, so we'll get into it. And I think that gives me a lot of fondness for this book that it probably doesn't deserve. But I do feel that the characters of Arlena and Linda are particularly well drawn. So I think I read this more for character than plot, which is probably not a good thing with an Agatha Christie. No. Um, but I do, I have real fondness for that. That's probably my favourite adaptation, actually, of Agatha Christie, is that Eastonoff version of this. So uh, we'll yes. get into that in due course. Yeah. Okay, listeners, I was just going to say readers, maybe your readers and listeners, we're going to discuss the spoiler-free to the end credit music and then get into the plot, or lack thereof, in the after show. So let's start off with a bit of historic context. So apparently this was written in 1938 when she was kind of cranking out three or four novels that she was publishing a year and keeping a few in reserve. I don't know if you ever got to one, two, buck on my shoe. Does it feel weird to you that this feels so non-wartime or did you just take it not as having any relationship to that? So whatever. I've got some thoughts on it and uh, probably best discussed in the spoiler section. Um, But... I think with us reading it so far away from what was actually happening back then, it, it, you sort of like just take it on its own terms as a book. It never struck me as unusual that one, two, book on my shoe was written before this one. Oh, sorry, was published before this one was. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't really take the historical context in it. And I, I think you've already mentioned it. it. Unlike maybe about half a dozen of the books around this that we've been reading recently, this doesn't really have a lot of historical context in it. Uh, you know, um, Poirot's Christmas mentioned the Spanish Civil War. Um, we had like the Emirate of Transjordan in uh, Appointment with Death. You know, all these things place it in a, its historical time. But the, I don't think there was anything in Evil Under the Sun or if there was, I've missed it, that sort of like nails it to that period. Yeah, is, and in fairness, actually, looked, we were, this is almost still phony war in, in, the, in the UK and the US isn't at war at all. Um, so mm. maybe we don't expect it. It's just, it's really interesting when we get to the novel immediately after this, mm. N or M. That's probably the most heavily wartime of all the books. So... I think in retrospect, I hadn't realized it was written until 1938 until I started doing some research. And then I was like, oh, okay, that makes so much more sense. Because actually in theme and concept, it's so similar to Death on the Nile. And I think what we've discovered or what I've discovered doing this reread is um, you can often see groupings of books that she's kind of working an idea out in slightly different ways in two or three novels and then moves Mm. on to another idea. And I think this is definitely one where you can see she was probably working certain ideas out um, here in other novels, which to me is a negative because I do think they're worked out better in those other novels, but um, we'll get into that. Yeah, but again, yeah, it's something for the spoiler section. It comes back to what you were saying about the characterization, though. I do think that uh, Arlena and Rosamond are probably two of his stronger sort of female characters, particularly when they're contrasted next to each other. Yeah, I think this is one of the best books Agatha's written for female characters, including the teenage girl. 
Um, right. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of historical context. There's not much, actually, because the prior novel was published in November 40, and this came out in June 41. So in December of 40, Captain America appears in print for the first time. Hooray. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald died, end of an era, end of the Jazz Age, start of the wartime age, maybe. Mm-hmm. January 1941, Lend-Lease begins. So America, although not in the war, starts basically funding Britain being in the war. And Puerto Ricans became U.S. citizens by birth. In February 1941, the USO was created, and the first per- person was treated by penicillin intravenously, so an age of medical advance. And then in April of 1941, the U.S. destroyer USS Niblack, while picking up survivors from a sunken Dutch freighter, drops depth charges on a German U-boat. So this is the first shot in anger fired by America against Germany, which is really interesting because the US is definitely not in the war at this moment. But I think that and the Lend-Lease shows you which side they're on. Um, Meanwhile, however, in America, the America First Committee holds its first mass rally in New York with Charles Lindbergh as a keynote speaker. So that sort of fringe American uh, sort of nationalist fascist sympathy coming through there. In May 1941, the breakfast cereal Cheerios is introduced. (laughs) Orson Welles released Citizen Kane. Um, The first defense bonds and defense savings stamps go on sale in the US to fund the greatly increased production of military equipment. Um, Oh yes, and the Royal Navy captured the um, German U-boat that had an Enigma crypto machine on it. So this is the break, what's going to then lead to the breakthrough of breaking Enigma code. The Disney animators strike begins, so echoes of today with a WGA strike. And Rudolf Hess parachutes into Scotland claiming to be on a peace mission. Last but not least, in June 1941, all German and Italian assets in the USA are frozen. Um, the US Army Air Corps officially becomes the US Army Air Force. And Operation Barbarossa begins. So it's kind of interesting to me, like looking at those months, most of the information focused on how the US was basically gearing up for war, which was kind of mm. rising. I didn't realize so much was going on pre Pearl Harbor. Um, but that was kind of interesting to me. Yeah, it certainly puts it into into context. I mean, I, I was always on the understanding that FDR had been um, preparing the US for war um, from like the late 30s anyway, from th- like 39, as soon as like war in Europe took off uh, I always got the feeling he was he was trying to to bring the US in on um mm. the ally side so yeah but obviously I think like there's always been um or, or certainly in that period there was a very strong isolationist strain in the US you well know, the Charles Lindbergh yeah. speech uh representing that I guess the America first well yeah I think like you you've mentioned probably a, a more right-wing version but uh, like even amongst sort of you know more left-wing people, I think, you know, there, there was um, a sort of a reluctance to get involved in the war, as I suppose there is with most countries, you know, yeah. it's not something that people, you know, rush towards, so. Agreed. Well, indeed, many people in England didn't rush towards it. Memories no. of World War One very strong. Um, Churchill, you know, battling against that, but the mainstream of opinion, I would argue, was one of relief at peace in our time, etc. So yeah. absolutely, it was a perfectly respectable opinion to be held. It's just that history proved it to be the wrong opinion, but it's very easy to be wise after the fact, isn't it? Um, yes, definitely. Okay, so let's get into the novel. This is, well, it's not really a closed house mystery. It's sort of like a closed island mystery, yeah. where Hercule <laughs> Poirot finds himself on holiday in an island off the coast of England that at certain tides can be accessed, but really is inaccessible except by boat. So a little bit less extreme than and then there were none. It's, it's basically a group of people having a holiday in a hotel. And amongst the guests is a very glamorous ex-actress called Arlena, who's now married to Kenneth Marshall. And she is incredibly glamorous. It feels like she's maybe having an affair with another guest called Patrick Redfern. Um, Some of the guests have reason to not like her, including her stepdaughter, Linda, who absolutely hates her and goes to the extent of buying a secondhand book that has some voodoo rituals in it. So she really doesn't like her. Um, But, you know, there are people on the island who are just there having their holiday. Not everyone's a suspect. Both of the films try and make everyone a suspect, but that's actually not the case in the book. Arlena Marshall goes for a little row around the island to an isolated cove. And the key thing about this beach is you can only reach it by boat or by climbing down a ladder to the bay. It's not very easily accessible. 
She's going for a secret assignation with her lover, but is instead murdered. So the question for Hercule Poirot is, who did it amongst the limited number of guests on the island? Before we get into the characters, maybe a little word on Christy Verse. The character of Colonel Weston had originally appeared in Peril at End House, one of Hannah's favourite books. Um, so that's made reference to. And then the minor character, Mrs. Gardner, uh, mentions death on the Nile and Cornelia Robson in chapter one of this novel. So there are some little Christy verse mentions in there. Um, let's get into the characters. Hercule Poirot. In a Xander-like way, I was trying to find some Hercule Poirot, Hercule Poirotisms. I couldn't Good really luck. find any. Did you <laughs> get luck. any? I couldn't. I couldn't find any like really arrogant bits. Yeah, she she used them all up in uh, one two book of my shoe. Yeah, <laughs> I was very disappointed. But he is really the sole detective. We don't have any other sort of. Um, we don't have Inspector Jap or anyone. Sadly, Inspector no. Jap we, like, we got, it, yeah, we've got Inspector Colgate and Colin Weston, but I think they're almost there to try and introduce a, an element of comedy. That they're, they're always running like a few steps behind what everybody else is doing. Yeah, so. the comic relief almost. Yeah. Um, so, but it's really about the guests on the island. So let's get into the Marshall family who are really at the core of this. So Captain Kenneth Marshall in his 40s, kind of funny because in the show or the, the TV show, the movie he kind of feels a lot older than that, but he's actually quite young, who is Arlena's husband, a sort of, you know, maybe rather old fashioned gentleman, rather earnest, kind of loyal, I guess. How do you find Kenneth Marshall? Um, I'm not a big fan of uh, Captain Ken. Um, I don't think he holds up that well. I, I think he's got like this white knight complex. And mm-hmm. As I was reading it, I was I was thinking um, to lose one wife can be regarded as a misfortune, but to lose two looks like carelessness. I, I was thinking of uh, Lady Bracknell from The Importance of Being Earnest again. I was yeah. like, my God, this guy is, is, is fatal. Who would ever want to marry him? He, he's outlived two of his spouses already. Yeah, so. he definitely has a white knight complex. It, it's implied that he basically marries Arlena because someone else blew her off um and he is very loyal like he he kind of in one sense knows that the marriage is bad but he kind of believes in his vows and it just feels like an imprisonment he says dash it all yeah there's got to be such a thing as good faith if you marry a woman engage yourself to look after her it's up to you to do it it's your show you've taken it on so it's kind of like he sees marriage as kind of taking on property or like taking on the caretaker role. It's really kind of patr- literally patronizing, I guess. Yes. Um, yeah, very, very, very much so. And then we get to the lovely Arlena Stewart Marshall, who had been a very famous actress. She's been married to Kenneth for the last four years. And I think we're meant to think that she's incredibly beautiful. This is the description from Agatha Christie. She was tall and slender. She wore a simple backless white bathing dress and every inch of her exposed body was tanned a beautiful even shade of bronze. She was as perfect as a statue. Her hair was a rich flaming auburn curling richly and intimately into her neck. Her face had that slight hardness which is seen when 30 years have come and gone. But the whole effect of her was one of youth, of superb and triumphant vitality. She's obviously the victim um, and she's in an incompatible marriage, you know, with a, a husband who finds her stupid. I think there's no other way of putting it. And, uh, and I, I, I think there, there is no love there. And she seemed to be carrying on with other men, you know, and I, I think that comes across very early on. And mm. I don't think it's portrayed in a positive light at the start of it. You know, yeah, but like there's, an very much... there's an interesting trick going on, isn't there? Because at the start, I think we're meant to think of her as a bit of a gold digger, yeah. a bit of a hussy, uh, yeah. you know, just and, and a poor, like... innocent captain who's taken advantage of. But actually, as the novel goes on, you realise... Um, there's more depth to it, yeah. There's way I, more I, depth to it. Very much like Death on the Nile, actually, where you're, you come... you're At the start, you hate the spoiled little sort of princessy rich girl who stole yeah. her best friend's boyfriend or fiancé. Yeah. But and actually, then you, you realise that they're more interested. On, yeah, you just moderately dislike her towards the end because you realise yeah. that she did have some <laughs> redeeming features. Whereas I think Arlena, I actually not liked at the end, but I really had sympathy by the end. So I think let's get into that in the spoiler section, but it's really interesting. Okay. And then to sort of round out that family, we have Linda Marshall, who is Kenneth's 16 year old daughter by his first marriage, first wife, who really hates her stepmom. Kind of no one really seems to know what to do with her. She's finished school. She's not yet at finishing school. She doesn't want to be sent to Paris, which is where her dad wants to take her. 
And I think she just feels very sort of, you know, clumsy and in the way and probably feels rather, you know, that Arlena is taking advantage of her dad. So mm. another interesting character, because it's one of the first times we're really seeing Agatha Christie portray a thing that didn't really exist in kind of social concept yet, a teenager. But I think mm. it's actually a pretty good description. I was thinking of her going to the bookshop and finding the little book on sort of witches' spells and getting the wax candles and kind of childishly trying to create a voodoo doll of her stepmom and thinking she's kind of like an emo goth teenager who hates her mum. It's it's very relatable. To sort of yeah, it, it, this aspect of it has dated, but I think what um, Christie's captured quite well is this idea of the teenager being awkward in their own skin. You know, mm. they're growing up, things are changing um, and they're not sure. You know, and and she does communicate that quite well. She talks about her being a bit, Linda being a bit clumsy, you know, and feeling that, you know, her hands aren't doing what she wants them to do all the time and, you know, being a bit, you know, on edge and, and, yeah, and so and things like that. Yeah, so, during puberty. I mean, it's, I think so many of us would relate to that. And it's kind of amazing to me because Agatha Christie at this point is 51. And yet she, it, I think it's a really sympathetic portrait of a teenager and she gets quite a lot of time in the book, hmm. um, which well, I like. Yeah, possibly something that she's written because she she's written this before, hasn't she? You know, mm. and, and that this character is possibly something she's based off her own experiences with her own daughter, who would have been a teenager not too many years beforehand. Yeah, so. exactly. And who, with whom we know she had a slightly awkward relationship. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's get into some of the other guests at the island. So Patrick and Christine Redfern. So Patrick Redfern is the young, very good-looking man. Agatha Christie describes him as lean, bronzed, with broad shoulders and narrow thighs. There was about him a kind of infectious enjoyment and gaiety. It feels like he's like a movie star. And this is definitely the type of guy that Agatha Christie went for in her young hot days as well. So... Mm. So he's he's the guy that Arlen is having an affair with. And then there's the weedy, pale wife, Christine, just sort of really kind of like pale and pasty and the absolute opposite of Patrick and Arlena. Um, she's afraid of heights. She can't get into the sun. She's just an absolute sort of very aware that her husband's having an affair and doesn't like it, but just absolutely stands in contrast. Yeah, but um, Poirot does make a comment, doesn't he? He does say... Um... She she's different from Arlena um, because she has brains. So like I think Poirot from a very early stage recognizes that, um, you know, um, Patricia Redfern is um, no, sorry, not uh, Christina Redfern is um, it, she's quite clever as mm. well. And we always know when when Poirot notices that someone she has brains, that one, that's mm. always a very, you know, just as if someone's an actress, that's often significant. If someone has yes. brains, that's often significant. Yeah, beware um, of brainy actresses, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Especially if Agatha Christie is giving us a very precise timeline, <laughs> then then get very worried about the timeline. Uh, this is the advantage of us being on our thirtieth one of these. Let's then go to uh, Rosamond Darnley. It is a very fashionable dressmaker. Similar character to the one we had in Three Act Tragedy, actually, which also featured a very fashionable, independent businesswoman and dressmaker. She's Kenneth Marshall's childhood sweetheart, happens to be on holiday at the same time as him on the island, which is a little bit kind of, well, is it dodgy? Is she positioning herself to be wife number three? Initially, she's somebody who Christy's written with quite a bit of affection. I think she has mm. a lot of respect, possibly because she's one of these women herself, um, four women who've gone out and made their own way in the world and, you know, have earned money, you know, through their own their own skills. And I like that. I like that Agatha Christie does admire women with brains, which um, is good. Um, Emily Brewster, who comes next. I would argue that Emily Brewster is a crypto lesbian, and it's really interesting in the Eustonoff film, she's transformed into a, a clearly very camp gay guy. Um, yes. Agatha Christie describes her as having a voice like a man's. She is gruff yeah. and what you call hearty. She rows boats and has a handicap of four at golf. I think, though, that she has a good heart. And I'm not saying that to have a handicap of four at golf, you are gay. But I think for Agatha Christie, that's probably a telltale sign for her in that era. Handicap of four at golf is, is pretty good. So, I mean, you'd be I mean, a she's... pro, wouldn't you? You'd be a lady professional, I would have thought. Yeah. Would make yeah. A bunch yeah. of money. <laughs> very, very close to it, definitely. Um, how do you find Emily Brewster? Um, not really registered. I, I think uh, a lot of these characters, they don't get a lot of on-page time. And I think this is probably, you know, it, it's one of the differences and maybe one of uh, the um, downsides of this book compared to the others in that a lot of these characters are much 
they're drawn much more shallowly. The characterization that we had in other books, you know, like even the one we had for the nurses back in Sad Cyprus, things like that. A lot of these minor characters don't get this level of characterization in this. I agree. Yeah, because of that, I feel the plot becomes more obvious. Not maybe how it was done, but who did it? Because there's so many characters A don't have a motive, and B there's just not enough attention paid to them for us. Yeah, I I, I think the thing about the the plot as well is it's like it's very difficult for somebody who who's seen the movie as a child to sort of be fooled by the plot anyway we we sort of we already know yeah. what it is so you're automatically looking for other things and i do think that if you were coming to this cold mm. not having seen anything it would probably because i do think um the plot mechanics are quite clever i do think it would it would hook you in more i think yeah. from that so let's round out the guests we've got carrie and odell gardner american tourists I, I was wondering about them because I, 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 I'm almost thinking, is Agatha dropping in Americans um, to appeal to the American audience here? And, and they also reminded me, like, um, in Shakespeare, you always have the rustics who are mm. sort of like the comedy characters in the background who don't really have a lot of impact on it. Um, well, she's I, I, them now. Like, I think when she used to drop in Americans before, they were always really crude and crass, new money and gauche. And there's a little bit about that in The Gardeners. But actually, it's more comedy just because she does all the talking and he says very little and is just goes off and plays yeah, golf. Yeah, and then Poirot says at the end, he's actually got quite a, a good sense of humour if you can get him away from his wife. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I did find that, um, I think Christy, I haven't got any examples of this, but I got the feeling that Christy was using them to drop clues as well. Um, yes. We were she talking about this. Bodies, you know. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this back in um, Hercule Poirot's Christmas, and I was like, why do you think um, the guy who did it um, mentioned that the key had been turned from outside the lock? And you said it's just because Christy needed to get that clue across to the audience. And I, I get the feeling that Carrie and Odell are there to, um, to help give us clues. Basically. Yeah, and I think Emily Brewster's very much in that camp as well. They're, 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 they're sort of plot mechanics delivery devices rather than actual characters. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh, we get the lovely, rich, loud and bigoted Horace Blatt. Um, but what's interesting is where, where we've perhaps had bigoted characters in the past, which are just bigoted and Agatha Christie may or may not be making a point. Here she very much criticizes him for it. He's mm. awful. Is he? always saying how rich he is and making those terrible jokes. I think it's I think we're very much meant to think that he's horrible. Um, so that's yeah. maybe a progression in her personal politics, maybe. We have the Reverend Stephen Lane, who calls Arlena Marshall evil through and through. Hence the title, Evil Under the Sun. But of course, our view on Elena's going to change. And there's a bit of slut shaming going in on that. Yes. We've got, yeah. <laughs> we've got Major Barry. And actually, Agatha Christie in general, when, when we get um, reverence, she's not very big on religious people in general. I think she finds them quite judgmental and hypocritical. So yeah. um, we've got Major Barry, retired Indian Army, an admirer of women, a teller of long and boring stories. I feel that this is a, progress- a progression of the Colonel Arbuthnot character. Like when you start off in her books in the early twenties, like she quite admires the sort of colonial, dashing, bronzed army officers, and by this point, she just finds them all really dull and bigoted. Yeah, she's boring. been to too many, uh, too many dinner parties and listened to the same stories over and over again. Exactly, but again, that's it's another way in which actually her books become, in a sense, more progressive because she starts seeing through those types. We have a chambermaid called Gladys Narricott. Mrs. Castle, the owner of the Jolly Roger, a woman of 40-odd with a large bust, rather violent henna red hair, and an almost offensively refined manner of speech. So probably someone who's putting on airs, Hyacinth Bouquet style, but, you know, another competent businesswoman. So we've got a few of those in this novel. And then the final thing I wanted to say was maybe we often talk about whether the books are, you know, how they hold up to a modern contemporary reader. And it's kind of interesting that there's no actual proper racism or anti-Semitism that I could find in this book. I think there probably is something a bit sort of, not misogynistic, but patronising about Kenneth Marshall. But I think we're meant to see it as such. Like, I don't think we're meant to see that as good. Mm. Um, What we love the podcast, don't we, all about the dame or all about Agatha. They were very harsh on it for Rosamond Darnley being willing to give up her business for romance, seemingly on the on on a whim. I actually disagree. I don't know how you how do you how did you find that without giving away too much of the mechanics of how it happens? I'm also a little bit disappointed in Rosamond, but I do recognise that that was of its time. You know, I, I think like the historical context. Um, needs to be taken into account um, mm. and the sort of the social norms at the time. And I do think that um, given the sort of 
that the the climate that Rosamond was operating in, I, I, she's quite a radical character anyway. I mean, I think Poirot says this. There's something like, um, you're maybe like one in a thousand women because you've managed to establish yourself independently, mm. you know, and make your own money. I do think it, it's a lot easier for us to look back at this like 80 years later and say, oh, this is a terrible character. But um, it, it was a character of its time. So. I do think, it, I agree with you. I do think it's fascinating that Agatha Christie gives so much time to this. Like there's a very long couple of pages where Poirot and Rosamond talking about her life and her achievements to date. And Poirot, mm -hmm. Papa Poirot, who always loves to marry people off, spends a lot yeah. of time praising her and saying like, you know, not one in a hundred women or a thousand could have created a business like the one that you have. And it's fascinating to me that the criticism is coming of herself from her. So it's a kind of yeah. internalized mis misogyny where she says, and yet all the same, I'm nothing but an old maid. That's what I feel today at any rate. I'd be happier with tuppence a year and a big silent brute of a husband and a brood of brats running after me. It's half tongue in cheek, but I think there is a truth there. And what, what I want to say about that passage is I think it's very easy for modern readers, podcasters, anyone to kind of be quite judgmental of her and of the novel and of the time. Yeah. But actually, I find this incredibly honest. And mm -hmm. I think it's a conversation that modern working women together will have about if they get to 40 and they haven't had kids, that they feel like failures. And wouldn't it be nice just one day to have a man, you know, in a conventional family, not have to explain myself to myself, let alone to others. And mm -hmm. I sort of, I really admire Agatha Christie for putting this in because I suspect it's a conversation she had with herself. And I think it's a conversation that even contemporary businesswomen who have been raised in the idea that you can have it all, but actually know that it's very, very hard to achieve that. Yeah. Have for themselves uh, and the people they trust. This is a conversation that she will have had with her first husband, definitely, and possibly with her second husband as well, you know, um, because of the times that she, she was living in. I mean, it, it, let's hold the conversation there and come back to it as well. Because I, I will agree with you in the podcast is about something that happens later on. But I think that initial conversation between Poirot and Rosamond is probably, in all of the stuff I've ever read, actually, let alone from this era, one of the most honest conversations about yeah, the, and the I, internal I, female conflict between and I think being there are probably and wanting to be married. <laughs> there are two parts of this section that you've lifted out that I think are are, are very telling. And I, like the first one is where is where Poirot turns around and says, "Look, Rosamond, like if you're not married, it's by choice because any man would have you. You know, um, they've obviously just not been persuasive enough. Whoever you've met, they've just not been right for you because." Like he says, like um, it is because um, my, members of my sex have not been sufficiently eloquent, you know. Mm. And, and and then the, the second part is, I do get the feeling like she's almost saying it tongue in cheek, you know. There there oh, is yes. a truthness to it, and there is a sadness to it, you know. And I, I, yeah, I, I I think you're right. I think it is a dilemma that a lot of um, women, you know, face in modern society, you know. Mm. Okay, let's get into the adaptations and start off with the absolutely glorious listener. If you've never seen it, immediately go watch the 1982 Peter Ustinov Poirot film. This came after the 78 death on the Nile. It stars Dame Maggie Smith, Dame Diana Rigg, James Mason, Sylvia Miles, Jane Birkin. It's a ridiculous cast. Nicholas Clay playing the devastatingly good-looking Patrick Redburn as well. Yeah, he's not he's not hard on the eyes. It's filmed <laughs> in a glamorous Greek island. Everyone looks gorgeous. Yeah, who's managed to get his, um, his holiday abroad out of the uh, the studio again? I mean, watch this if if for no other reason than Yusnov in full bathing kit pretending to go and have a swim. I mean, it's so camp. It's so ridiculous to see Dame Diana. Yeah. Rig and Maggie Smith just catty going against each other. So Diana Riggs, Arlena, Maggie Smith, Rosamond. Um, it's full of Cole Porter songs. It's just yeah. flamboyant and ridiculous and absurd. And I directed just, by Guy Hamilton as well of James Bond fame. So. Absolutely, it's um, it's just incredible fun. They do strip some stuff out. There's no, I mean, there's very little subplot in the actual book, but the subplot there is they take out. Everybody has a motive. Carrie and Odell become, you know, theatrical agents who Arlene is upset, you know, by pulling out of a show. 
things like that, which I think are the nice touches. They've obviously worked on the script. Yeah, and it actually makes it probably better than the book, in so far, which is heresy, because it gives more people a motive. Yeah. I really love the casting of the little girl who plays Linda. I think she's tremendous. And we also get one of the most hilarious kind of makeover moments, um, but I won't say what it is because it'll spoil something, but um, you can probably guess what it is. At the oh, end yeah, of I, know what you're t- yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, and it is, <laughs> it is fantastic as well. Jaw-droppingly good. So, I have um, watched this so many times that I can almost recite it and it almost blocks out my memory of the book, but I did watch it again this morning. Yeah. After the yeah. Grand Prix. And then I made the fatal mistake of then immediately watching the 2001 Agatha Christie Poirot starring David Suchet. And well, oh my word. On the Ustinov so one, I, I would just say I, I don't think it's it's quite fair to compare the two because I do think that um, that Ustinov adaptation, it, it, it's played more like a farce, you mm. know, um, and, and they've definitely leveraged the comedy angle, which is not there in the original book. The, the plot is basically the same and some of the lines are basically the same, but it, like Ustinov gives a great comic turn in it and um, I, 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 poor old David Suchet, I don't think is going to, going to be able to match that to match it. but it's important to say that as many liberties as the Ustinov one makes with the exception of a swimming cap it basically is entirely the same plot so they respect the plot mechanics but mm. they do they do play it bigger and more melodramatic and more camp for sure um yeah. have you have you watched this david suchet one yes i i watched this especially for for the, this podcast that we're doing oh, um, bless you. I watched, i'm sorry I, I watched it yesterday, and, and and the funny irony as well is you were watching the Japanese Grand Prix, and I was flicking on to watch Match of the Day this morning, and they actually had the they had the David Suchet one on again this morning on oh my ITV3. Oh, so, there you go. But I I I didn't mind this uh, Suchet one probably because it's been a while since I watched the Ustinov one. But um, on the All About Agatha podcast, they said that um, Suchet had said that this, like being one of the later Poirots, um, it had been very difficult to sort of recapture a lot of the stuff that they'd done in the earlier ones. And um, that they, bits of this, you know, on reflection, he was saying felt tired. And I'll be honest, I didn't get that feeling. I I enjoyed the setting. I thought um, setting on that island Mm. was great. And, and, like some of the attention to detail on that island, I thought was fantastic. They must have just got some Art Deco hotel because well, it's, like, set I, on, it's set on Berg Island and in the hotel that actually inspired um, Agatha Christie to write, and then there yeah, were none. So it genuinely is, does have a causeway with it when the tide, you know, is in the wrong place. Yeah, you, it, and that tractor like, that came across, I thought was fantastic. <laughs> I, I love that. But like, I, I, I was sitting there with my my sort of builder's eye and going, "Oh, those are Crittle style windows. They're of the period." <laughs> You know, yeah. I, I, and I know that because I've had to buy them for a conservation job, and they cost a fortune now. And the, and the furniture is all very of the period too. When he's first yeah. here, his bedroom. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I thought it. You know, it was it was quite good. A, a couple of other plus points for me. I thought um, Anthony Horowitz writing it, and he's done like a lot of the modern James Bond stuff. I thought that was quite interesting that he's had a, a, a hand in the script. I appreciated that. Um, actually, no, I won't mention that because that will be a spoiler. But I, I felt that they tightened the, the 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 plot quite a bit, and some of the credibility issues that the book had, um, it's sort of like it it, it smoothed them out. You know, where yeah, Christie sometimes like leaves a loose end floating. They've written um, a, an explanation for that, and uh, it, it had Hastings Argentine restaurant as well, where Poirot gets poisoned. <laughs> you you see, know? I I could have done without Hastings and Miss Lemon and Jap and oh yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah, the Miss Lemon character, I, I, I did feel that's where you could sort of like see that the production was getting a bit flabby. Mm. You know, I, I did look at that and think, mm, yeah, it's not the best, the best part of the adaptation. But when they got to the island, everything th- I thought was great. The other thing I was going to say about the Argentine restaurant as well is it's not like any Argentine restaurant I've ever been to because I did spot vegetables on the, <laughs> the, 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 the plate there. So um, that, that that was like the one flaw I found in in that adaptation. But anyway, I mean, I have to say, you definitely enjoyed it more than me. I was I found it painfully dull and literally dull. Where the other one is sunlit and gorgeous, I found this to just be absolutely painful. But um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So well, uh, out of uh, of interest as well, I also appreciated as well um, um, making the um, the son a boy rather than a girl, which I thought, uh, you know, the, 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 the son of the captain, mm. you know, so they just changed the gender. And I thought that actually helped tighten up the plot slightly as well, because it gave you like 
somebody else, you know, uh, and another way that the murder could have been committed, things like that. So, Whereas I love Linda as a character, so... He's a I'm great character, and, and it's fantastic. But anyway, we can talk about it in the spoilers. So. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to say before the spoiler part? No, I, I think that's everything. Okie dokie, folks. So with that, we're going to leave you with the end credits music and an invitation to read N or M, a, Tommy and, a rare Tommy and Tuppence novel which will be our next episode. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy whatever you're listening to, reading or watching. And if you do want to know who done it, tune in after the end credits music. Okay, folks, we're back and we are now going to be spoiler filled. So to give you the solution to the novel, Patrick and Christine Redfern are in cahoots. They are a very happily married pair of grifters and they are basically conning Arlena out of her money. Arlena truly believes she's having a passionate affair with Patrick, who's then basically siphoning off the funds from her inheritance from a previous lover. They lured her down to, or he lured her down to an assignation in the cove. Um, And to get the timelines and to give themselves alibis, what happened was is she was hiding in a cave while Christine Redfern, having applied fake tan, was pretending to be the dead body on the beach. And then they went, or he went and strangled Arlena. So they provide each other effectively with the alibis. And it's very similar in that respect to Death on the Nile, where we have a love triangle. But actually, you realize that the old lovers are still the lovers. And this is, of course, a, you know, a, a trope that Agatha Christie uses time and time again. Back to Mysterious Ferret Styles, Murder at the Vicarage, and even One to Buckle My Shoe, where there's a secret lover that you don't realize. So to me, the novel falls a little bit just on the fact that it's a very rehashed, reused plot. Yeah. And I feel it's just far better done in Death on the Nile. In yeah. terms of clues, um, the clues are no one actually saw the victim's face. So was it really the victim? If everyone has an alibi, the timeline must be suspect and often is actually in an Hercule Poirot novel. Um, The bottle thrown away, the mysterious bath run at noon and the scent of perfume in the cave. There aren't that many red herrings in this plot, but I suppose the whole Linda voodoo one is. There's also a drug smuggling subplot as well, which is a bit poorly done, I think. So it's not... It's not big. You know, if you think of Death of the Nile, you had the, the sort of the theft of the pearls. There was a lot going on there that had to be sort of cleared away before you got to the real murder. Whereas this one, I think, it, as you said earlier, rather thin. What's your feeling on the plot mechanics, the plot credibility, how it all hangs together once we realise what was going on? I, I, I thought it was really tight. I mean, there were a couple of other things just to, to mention on the clues. I think Poirot uh, um, makes that comment earlier, quite early on, where he's saying, like, all bodies under the sun look the same. They're all just yeah. grilling slabs of meat, you know. Um, and then the other thing as well is that we know it's a man. Like, they're very definite about it being a man's hands. And I thought that was quite good in the adaptation because by, you know, making um, Linda Lionel, you know, Mm. you've given us another suspect. So you've broadened the potential number because it it is quite thin and you you do realise that, you know, there's only, like I think they say this in the book, there's only three people who could have done it. You know, because we've only got three men on the island. You know, yeah, and that's it. exactly, exactly. So it, it, it narrows the cast down, um, the, the the sort of the suspect list down quite quite quickly. But you know, I, I know what you're saying about it being a, a rehash and it, it being a rework, and it is just basically the messing with the timeline. And you, 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 we do see that quite a bit, and that's why I was almost thinking. Was this one of the reasons why it sat on her desk a bit longer than mm. some of the others? Because she had a raft out in the, the sort of the mid to late thirties that all relied on this, and she'd all, probably already written this and then been told by a publisher, "Look, Agatha, you've done it three times in the last twelve months. We can't necessarily release this. Can you do something yeah. else?" You know, so um, that that's that's the sort of thing I I, I, I took out. But I, I thought, like standalone, if she'd not written anything else in the thirties, we'd all be looking at this going, "Oh, wow." Well plotted, you know. It, it 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 it's quite a clever device. I I I, I thought it worked, but I'm just wondering if it's a bit over complex in terms of there's so much room for this to go wrong. The I was reading some of the reviews at the time, and the one that I really agree with is by someone called Isaac Anderson, published mm. in October 41 in the New York Times Book Review, and he says 
The murder is an elaborately planned affair, a little too much so for credibility, in view of the many possibilities of a slip-up somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. Poirot's reasoning is flawless, as it always is. So I kind of agree with him that I do like the intricacy of it, but a bit like Death on the Nile, actually, where there has to be so much like running up and down the side of the boat and this bullet has to go yeah, down. Yeah, and I, I, I think the, the oh, you know, on your all about Agatha podcast, they say like the difference between this and Death on the Nile, and what probably gives Death on the Nile the edge is in Death on the Nile, it sometimes goes wrong, so they get spotted, yeah, you know, and then they have to kill more people to keep it quiet. Um, whereas in this, everything goes flawlessly for them. Apart so, from the bottle, I guess, because someone yeah, almost brain by the bottle, but yeah, absolutely, the stakes are much lower in that respect. One of the other reasons why I uh, I thought this was quite good and why I would put it top tier is I I know we sometimes are at loggerheads over how bad Christie's villains are, um, but yeah. I, I think Patrick and Christina Redfern are probably two of the most loathsome characters that she has written. Because it's just um, for money. But it's not just that. It, 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 it's the way that they've done it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and Poirot says, doesn't he? He says premeditated strangulation is one of the most sadistic methods of murder because of the pleasure the murderer takes in using their physical strength to exert power over the victim. And I'd never even contemplated that, you know, not even thought of it. And it was quite chilling. And I read, you know, Christie explaining it through the voice of Poirot. I thought, you know, this, this is right. And he's done this more than once. You know, mm-hmm. and he's basically doing it because he enjoys it as well as for the money. And you sort you of know, feel like they're going to carry on doing it, right? I think that comes yeah. across the East enough that yeah. they are just going to find other women to exploit and do this again and again. Well, as long as his looks hold. Yeah. And, 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 and like the other thing as well, I thought like, uh, like again, made me like, sort of like go be cold shivers over them as, as villains was the way that they um, took the, the opportunity to start setting Linda up. Yes. As, uh, as a suspect, you know, yep. because they, they they just took the opportunity. They thought, hang on, we've got a patsy here. Let's push her towards the detectives, you know, and and, and the way that they've all structured that. You yeah. Know? So, like, I, I, I did find them, you know, some of the most horrible people that, 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 that Christie has written with almost, in fact, I would say this, with nothing to redeem them. You know, I'd probably I probably put them up Simon there. Simon Doyle like, is very much in that category, too. He just wants the money and the easy, cushy life and not to work for it. And Yeah, but he, he's not. passionately in love, but I don't ever get the impression yeah, but, that Simon is. But he's not, he, he's not strangled people previously. You know, like, he's been caught on his first attempt or mm. that's as, as far as we know whereas Patrick and Christina have done it at least once maybe twice before that out of the few Christies I've read I think this pair are probably up there with Mrs. Boynton the sort mm. of like some of the nastiest people that Christie's written agree. Um, so uh, yes and, and you do get that I think what's brilliant about the Eastnoff is that that Christine Redfern makeover at the end yes you see the haughtiness and the superciliousness and the contempt yeah with which they hold the mere yeah, mortal and the transformation that's what i remember my mum turning around and saying like when she's walking along looking all dowdy and pasty my mum in my ear going that's jane burke and she's gorgeous you just wait till you see her <laughs> later on she doesn't look like that yes, you know exactly. and then she came down with the fantastic hat you know and absolutely it, stunning yeah, yeah. And, you know immaculately dressed you know, and you're just like, oh my gosh, look, look at that. You know, and then you can see straight away why Patrick Redfern is not serious about his relationship with our Arlena. He's, um, you know, it, it, because yeah. um, Christina is fantastically beautiful anyway. And I think it was quite nice. Again, it was like another touch that the adaptation's done and how they've evolved Christie's basic plot, you know, mm. in, in, in a good way. It's a, a good yeah. retelling. I really, I, as, as I just said, I mean, I think it's, for me, it's my favourite adaptation. It just it it respects the plot, it respects the ma- mechanics, but it yeah. adds so much more. Um, yeah, definitely. And it's so much fun. I mean, I I watched it so many times. I had a whale of a time watching it again this morning. Um, right. Well, is there anything else to be said? Maybe a little bit on Rosamund Darley. I mean, we both think she's a very admirable businesswoman, as does Poirot. So at the end, of course, Kenneth Marshall, the rather patronising, stodgy man, is now a widow yet again. Arlen has been murdered. And he says to Rosamond, you're going to give up that damn dressmaking business of yours and we're going to live in the country. And she says, don't you know that I make a very handsome income out of my business? Don't you realize that it's my business, that I created it and worked it up and that I'm proud of it? And you've got the damn nerve to come along and say, give it all up, dear. I've got the damn nerve to say it, yes. 
and you think I care enough for you to do it? If you don't, said Kenneth Marshall, you'd be no good to me. Rosamond said softly, oh, my dear, I've wanted to live in the country with you all my life. Now it's going to come true. Yeah. And what I was thinking as I read that was like Agatha's hit the word count and the publishers aren't getting a penny more out of her. She's not writing any. Just just wrap that up for convenience because there's no way she can be. I, I mean, she might have had moments where she thought it would be great just to be a housewife and as you said in conversations we've had previously about this, like a lot of this probably comes back to her Victorian upbringing, you know, mm. where she could almost expect to be looked after. You know, she would run the house and somebody else would bring the money in so she could run the house. In 21st century reread, it is, it's depressing reading. I think this is it a character who we're supposed to respect. Like a taming of the shrew that you get this very feisty woman who's... It says so much more about Kenneth, but he just cannot conceive of taking a third wife. He yeah. would, it just makes me think even worse of him. For yeah. her, it is quick, but I do think the only thing that I think justifies it is they were childhood sweethearts. She probably has been dreaming about being Mrs. Kenneth Marshall all her life. She probably yeah. didn't dream of being a businesswoman, but had to to survive and to have an income. And so this really is her sort of her underlying dream. So. Yeah. I think the way I justify it is, is you've got to read into it that this is like if he's in her his mid 40s so she she's probably been pining for him for say the better part of 30 years if not more this is the one bit where I can see why people really hate it and it does jar with me a little yeah. bit too <laughs> and, and and like you, you you've said this when we've talked about books in the past as well and you've said yeah I, I'm not sure how this would have played out. You know, Papa Poirot has wrapped everything up nicely, you know, for the couples on that Nile steamboat, you know, but are their relationships going to last? I'm almost looking at this going, there's another conversation that these two people will be having in a few hours' time and it will be very different and uh, Rosamond will be wearing the trousers and um, Captain Marshall will be firmly put in his place as he realises that she's probably earning more money than him. And uh, I, um, I think she's going to get absolutely bored out of her not being married to him. She's just yeah. way too, way so, too impressive a woman. <laughs> definitely. So uh, yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought that. Like, uh, I suppose the other thing is, is I thought like I, I liked thinking about them uh, contrasted because like I, I think the strongest part of this book for me is Poirot's speech at the end about Arlena Marshall. Mm. You know, and it, it it was a real eye opener for me. And I, I thought for this to be written back when it was written and for Christie to have sold us on the gold digging aspects, everybody on this island spreads gossip and perpetuates the rumors about Arlena being a gold digger. She's only after people's money. Poirot says, I saw her first and last. Oh, sorry. I saw her first, last and all the time as an eternal and predestined victim. Because she was beautiful, because she had glamour, yes, because men turned their heads to look at her, it was assumed that she was the type of woman who wrecked lives and destroyed their souls. But I saw her differently. It was not that she was fatally attracted to men, it was men who were fatally attracted to her. She was the type of woman who men care for easily and of whom they easily tire. That's really moving writing. And I thought, like, comparing that with, um, with that, that, I think that's why Rosamond's statement at the end is so much more of a disappointment. Because after Christie's given us this insight, you know, Arlene is this woman who's defined herself by men finding her attractive and, and it's led to her death. Um, and Rosamond is doing the same right at the very end. You know, she's going to define her future based on Captain Marshall. And I'm like, it's tragic in a way to read it. And I'm like, oh, that, that I think that it doubled down on the disappointment for me because I, I, I do think like Arlena uh, Marshall is such a tragic character with that statement that Poirot makes that I, I think that's what lifts this book for me. Just that one passage, it just moves it into top tier. So Yeah, I agree. I think that there's a real switcheroo going on here and Agatha Christie knows exactly what she is doing. She is taking what she knows is a readership that is ready to judge a woman like this. And where she's written characters a little bit who would fall into this, like Lord Edgware dies, where, you know, there's a glamorous woman who has ensnared a rich aristocrat for the money and is very much a gold digger. So she's taking kind of cliches and societal condemnation that she's been on the other side of and then mm. flips our understanding of who this woman is. 
and portrays her to be a true victim not just because she's murdered but because of how really throughout her life she's she's just going to be exploited i think there's a very similar character actually in an evelyn war novel that's published well a little bit later than this in his sword and on a trilogy where we start off really hating this woman she's just exploitative and pretty and she goes after the kind of the aristo guy but by the end of it there's no other way to view her but as tragic and as destined to be exploited and that's why I love this novel, because I think I don't really buy into the plot, although it's very clever and mm. it is a bit padded out. But I just think the way she does Rosamond and Arlena and Linda, to a lesser extent, I think are really fascinating. I'm not sure it's it's that different now. I don't think it's that different to seeing some of the pretty Hollywood starlets who are sort of serially exploited and end up drifting or, you know, some of the celebrity figures that we see today. That yeah. I often see these women in the public eye and think, gosh, you're just never going to be settled because you're always going to be attracting a certain kind of person yeah so yeah i find yeah. it very moving i find Arlena very very moving actually yeah and I, I, that, I think that's the one thing i got through on this reread like this was the first time actually reading the book i've watched the adaptations before mm. and I, i've never picked up on this the tragedy of Arlena marshall it, it's just passed me by I, like yeah skated over it and i don't think they make i think there is room to make another adaptation maybe kenneth branner will do it and if they do i think there is a lot more to be made of this you know yeah, and if you cast someone a little bit younger right because if if kenneth marshall's in his 40s she's in her early 30s right and i think you mm. could cast someone a bit sort of taylor swift age and you could cast yeah. someone who had more of a fragility to her because say what you were about Diana Rigg, I mean, she is phenomenal and so yeah. beautiful and so charismatic, but she is not fragile. Even but it was played very differently as well, because yeah. Maggie Smith and Diana Rigg were bouncing off each other, you know, and they were emphasizing the the um, the rivalry and the cattiness. And that was part of the oh. humor that was brought to it and the farce. And that was important for that adaptation. And I think if you're going to do another one, you're going to have to do it different, you know, because otherwise you're just going to do a retread. But I do think on this character of Arlena Marshall, there is something to be done here over this, um, uh, this exploitation to make much more of it. You know, and I, I think if you miss that opportunity, I, th- I think you're right. I think it, it needs good casting, you know, but there, there, there's a meaty character and a great story to be told there that I think is relevant to our times now. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you could have someone who could play it with a little bit of fragility. It'd be so powerful. Mm, oh, well, definitely. this has been like such a cool, actually, I didn't even know if we'd have so much to talk about. This is, this has been a really enjoyable discussion. It's, I think yeah. it's made me admire the, the novel more at the end than at the start, which is probably a good thing as well. Yeah. Well, no, uh, uh, yeah. Thanks very much for uh, talking it through with me. You know, as always, we're, well, we're learning new stuff. So, yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I look forward to N or M. Again, it's, it's one that it's not by any means a perfect novel, but I think it has so much in it that's kind of interesting. And in that one, particularly about the war. Um, yeah. Well, right, I'll well, give it a read and we'll, we'll message about it on the Discord and, and take it from there. So. All right. Have a lovely rest of the weekend. Bye. And you. Okay, bye.